This morning, the scripture is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, are surprised. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord. Would you use this morning in your message this morning to make this last song that we sing uh, true of our hearts? Would we be willing to live for you? Would we be willing to die for you? Would we be willing to give up all things for you? We cry this out, Lord. Spirit, would you make it true? Would you align our desires with yours? And would you be glorified through Christ Jesus in everything forever and ever? in this church and in Gainesville, Lord. We love you and we trust you to do these things. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you for reading that, Kayla. Glad to be with you guys this morning. I uh, want to welcome you here this morning. Um, if you will, um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 11, um, as we just read. Um, as always, I'm super thankful for the elders to give me this opportunity uh, to stand before you guys and to open up God's Word. You know, this is um, this this passage that we're looking at this morning. It's just an amazing passage when it comes to this idea of what it means to follow Christ. You know, just last week as Kevin was preaching through these verses, unfortunately I wasn't here, but I was able to listen to it, and that was a very difficult text. You know, like a very difficult, difficult text. And one of the, uh, the big pictures, the main ideas that Kevin talked about was just this idea that, that Jesus is the greater ark. You know, Jesus is better than the ark. And we have Christ now. And so kind of like in that same vein, this text before us this morning is a very difficult text. There's a lot of ideas in here that on the surface don't make a lot of sense. But I'm hoping that as we begin to explore these verses, that they'll make more sense as we just begin to look at them. You know, when we look at this idea of following Christ, there are so many times in our lives that, that we're just filled with struggle. 
You know, it's a struggle oftentimes to follow Christ. But what Jesus tells us is he tells us that following him is so valuable that it's as though a man was looking for a treasure in a field. And when he found that treasure, he sold all that he had to get that field, to buy that field, to be able to possess that treasure. And again, he tells us another story in Matthew. He talks about how um, it's like a man who's searching for pearls. And when he finds this pearl of great price, he gives up all that he has to have this one pearl of great price. And this pearl is our faith. This pearl is our faith in Christ, our belief in Jesus. And in the same way, this passage is going to help us to see how valuable our faith in Christ really is. You see, something that's true of every believer is every believer hungers and thirsts, even yearns to be like Christ. We yearn to follow Christ and to do what's right and to do what's best. To put it in biblical terms, every believer hates sin and we love righteousness. And the passage this morning is going to show us the Christian way of living and thinking so that we can be more Christ-like. So you might be wondering, um, let me just give you my title. My title is this title, Suffering in the World Produces Solace in the Church. Suffering in the World Produces Solace in the Church. And solace is not a word that we use um, in our like, everyday language. It's not a common word, so let me just kind of break down that word for you. You know, so solace means comfort. Um, it means to be uh, relieved of distress. Uh, to have solace means that you have um, no more um, distress, no more misfortune. It's to be comforted. And so in this passage, what uh, Peter's going to show us is how to have solace, how to have comfort, how to have peace. And because of how difficult uh, some of the sentences are in this passage, I want to give you just this, this main idea of this entire text, and then we'll walk through these verses to look at what exactly Peter is saying to us. But here's the main idea. The main idea is this. For the believer, going, the life is going to be full of suffering. And to make it through that suffering, our time in the church must be different. To put, a, put it a different way, we are, we are living in a contentious world, so if we're going to endure, it can't be contentious in the church. To boil it all down to one sentence, we're living in a contentious world, and if we're going to endure, it can't be contentious in the church. The church should be a place of relief, a place of comfort, and a place of support. The church should be a place of solace. That's our main idea as we look at these verses uh, right here in 1 Peter. So let's, let's start back up in verse 1. Uh, let's read that verse again. Verse 1 says this. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what this simply means is that Christ died. And when Jesus died, he died with a purpose. Peter says, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. You know, when we go through life, we have to arm ourselves and be prepared for battle. So he says, arm yourself with the same way that Peter, uh, that Jesus thought. And what did Jesus think? Jesus thought that even in death, he could triumph. Even in death, he was able to have victory over sin. To put it a different way, God's message is worth dying for. And so voluntarily accepting the potential of death as a part of the Christian life, is very, very important. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, and these are 
very famous words. I'm sure that, that you, you know this by heart. Jesus says to take up your cross and follow me. And taking up that instrument of death, taking up the cross and following Christ meant that it is very possible that for the believer, they could die. It was very possible that all those who followed Christ after his death, all of his apostles, it was very, very possible that they were going to die. And so with that being in mind, this death that you die for Christ is the ultimate weapon. It's the ultimate weapon. As we suffer in this life, as we go through difficult times, as the world persecutes us, and as the world begins to, to push in on us and crowd in on us to try to snuff out our faith and try to extinguish our love for God, as we undergo extreme pressure and distress of suffering, the worst they can do to you is kill you. And what Peter is saying in this test, text right now is that if that happens, then you have the ultimate triumph just like Jesus did. You see, there are so many martyrs that have filled the pages of Scripture. You know, we look at the very first Christian martyr who was Stephen, and Stephen was stoned to death in Acts. And then, like, we can even go down to Peter's life. And with Peter, um, he was able to, to be martyred for Christ. He actually died by being crucified upside down. And what he's saying is that as you're persecuted, as you suffer, and we know that this entire book of 1 Peter is all about suffering. He's saying as you're persecuted, as you suffer, remember this, that the worst they can do to you is to kill you. And killing you, killing us, extinguishing our lives is the best thing that can happen to a believer. And you say, well, man, Theo, like that, that, that sounds you know, a little bit morbid, you know, to say that like dying is good. Why, why is dying good? How is that a good thing? for us to die, you know, on behalf of Christ. You know, dying is a good thing for the believer because what dying does is it helps us reach our ultimate goal as a Christian. I, I, I hope that our ultimate goal as a believer is, is this longing that we have inside of us to be free from sin. What we want is we want to do what's best. We want to live a life that's right before God. We want to be righteous. And so to be able to do that, we have to be free of sin. And so what death does, if death is the gateway to freedom from sin. And this is Peter's point right here in this text. He says, we are only free from sin when we die. What's the point of, of our entire lives? What's the point of us struggling through everything that we struggle through as a believer, well, it's ultimately to get to Christ. It's ultimately to get to God. It's ultimately to be free from sin. And so this is what Peter tells us. He says, death is a permanent, eternal state of absence of sin for the Christian. The entire threat that unbelievers hold over us and that the worst they can do to us is kill us, the worst that they can do is persecute us to the extent that we give up our lives, that threat is completely nullified when your mindset is the same mindset that Jesus has. As Peter says here, he says, let this purpose be in you, which is also in Christ. What was Christ's purpose? His purpose was to live for the glory of God. His purpose was to realize that death couldn't separate him from his mission because his mission was ultimately to please God and to be free of the burdens of this sin-filled world. You see, the only people who are free from sin in this life are people who are dead. If a person is alive, he's a sinner, either a forgiven sinner 
or he's a sinner who doesn't think that he needs forgiveness, who thinks that maybe he can uh, be good enough to be able to earn God's favor. He can be good enough to escape God's punishment, which is a false belief. The only person that is free from sin are those who are no longer alive. All believers sin. And Paul, he tells us this in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, for the good that I will to do, I don't. And that which I will not to do, that I practice. He says every single day he struggles with sin. Every single day, as much as he wants to please Christ, he just can't do it. He struggles tremendously. And so as long as you're alive, you're going to have a sin problem. And as long as you're alive, the only re ultimate relief that could ever come from sin is through death. And so this is what, what Peter says in this really difficult text. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he died. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as he had. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever dies as Christ died has ceased from sin. Verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If your eternal goal is to be free of sin, then what Peter is saying is, then that should be like your everyday goal as well. If your eternal goal is to be completely free of sin, then each and every day you should want to become free of sin as you live life, as you wake up and as you go to sleep and as you go throughout this Christian life. It's the goal of the believer to avoid and to reject sin. And if you love Jesus, you will hate sin. That's what he's telling us in verse 2. Verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, and passions, and drunkenness, and orgies, and drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter tells us that we've spent more than enough time in the past living like that, living like he just described in verse 3. He reminds us of our pre-conversion state. As he's trying to motivate us not to sin, he reminds us what sin looks like. He says we've spent more than enough time in that state that we were in before we knew Christ, before we were a believer, before we came to the Savior. He says we need to continue to abandon our former lives because we're dead to all of those former sins. We should look back at our old lives and say, wow, I've spent more than enough time like that. I spent more than enough time in sin, and I'm tired of sin as a Christian. So many of us, I think, uh, this, is, this is so, so practical. So many of us, I think, can look back on our lives before Christ and say, wow, man, look at what God has delivered me from. Like, I remember what it was like to be apart from Christ. I remember what it was like to not know Jesus, and I'm so thankful that I'm not that person anymore. I'm so thankful that God has taken me out of those old habits, out of those old routines, out of those old things that I used to do day in and day out. Like God has delivered me from that sin. This is super practical uh, that, that we can just look back in our minds and remember what it was like not to know Christ and what it is like now to know Christ, what it's like to be separated from sin in that way, in that same way. You know, I, I, think, I think back to the fact that I became a believer when I was a uh, freshman in high school, um, I, I oftentimes tell the story that when, um, when the 9-11 attacks happened um, in 2001, I was uh, sitting in my freshman biology class. Um, and as I sat in that class, um, one of our uh, teachers called 
my biology teacher and said, you need to turn on the TV. Uh, so my biology teacher turned on the TV and turned it onto the news. And me and my fellow freshmen, we sat in class and we watched uh, this, this tower, which was smoking and which was on fire. It was unclear as to how exactly the tower uh, caught on fire. You know, there were like a couple reports about things, but, you know, at 8 o'clock in the morning, it was like very, very fuzzy um, as to what happened. And so as we watch um, that tower smoking, um, just before uh, we transferred classes, I remember watching live um, as the second plane entered into um, the, the, the TV screen. And we watched the second plane hit the second tower. And it was in that moment that we realized that this was an attack. And we realized that something really bad was happening. Something really bad was going on. And so um, later on that, that day, um, I began to, to think about eternity. You know, where do you go when you die? What happens to you when you die? And up until that point in, in my little ninth grade uh, life, I, I never thought about eternity. That was something that was just um, not even relevant, you know, to think about what happens after you die. I didn't grow up in church. You know, I, I didn't grow up in, in, a, in a Christian home. And so all of those things were like really um, just, just not a part of my normal life. And so for the first time ever, I thought about eternity, and God would use that uh, a couple months later uh, to lead me to come to a church. And as I came to a church, I listened to a preacher talk about sin and talk about Christ and talk about the fact that Jesus could save us from sin. And I remember in that moment thinking, this is really, really good news. Because even as a ninth grader, I realized that I had sinned a lot. You know, like, I was, I was um, proud of how good I could lie to people. Um, I was a very bitter person in so many ways. Um, and pride in my life was such a big part of my life. Um, and so I knew that I sinned, and I knew that I had done things that displeased God. And the fact that this preacher was talking about the fact that, that, that someone, this Jesus, could, could save from sin was, was a game changer. It was massive. And so that, that, that day, uh, that, that night, November the 9th, 2001, uh, was the day that I became a believer. That was the day that I became a Christian. That was the day that my life was forever changed by Christ. And so what, what Paul is trying to help us to, sorry, what Peter is trying to help us to remember is that there was a point in time before we knew Christ when our lives were full of sin. Much like my life was full of, of lying and bitterness and pride, as I talked about, like there was a point in our past where we had sin, even if we were really, really young uh, whenever we came to Christ. Uh, we're born in sin. And so he says that, remember that. Remember where you were. Remember who you were. And as you remember that, let that motivate you to live for God. Let that motivate you to want to continue to pursue Christ. Peter names a couple specific sins here. I want to kind of walk you through what, what each of these means really, really briefly. Uh, Peter says, what characterized your old life? What characterized your old life? The first word he uses is sensuality. You know, this is a word that describes unrestrained sin. This is a course of life that sends any sin. There's no boundaries, there's no limits, there's no controls. This is full throttle wickedness without limits to the extreme. Before Christ, we were full to the excess of sensual pleasure and pursued evil continually. Then he uses this word, he used the word passions. 
Passions means evil desire or lust. This means to be driven by animal instinct. This is just mindless indulgence and pleasures. This word passions. He says drunkenness. Drunkenness literally means wine bubbling up. That's, the, that's, that's what it literally translates to. And this is just habitual intoxication. This is ceaseless drunkenness, as described here uh, with, this, with this word. He says orgies. This refers to wild parties. This word was frequently used outside of Scripture uh, to refer to people who staggered away from parties, to refer to people who, as they were staggering away from parties, they just wreaked havoc on everything that they came into contact with. You see, this was public intoxication and wild street-walking drunkenness, this word orgies. Then he says drinking parties. Drinking parties means just, j- just what it says. It's, it's probably the most literal word that we have here. This is just a party whose only purpose is to get drunk. This is drinking for the sake of drinking. And then the last word he uses here to describe our old life is lawless idolatry. And I wish that that I had time uh, just to look at just idolatry um, in and of itself. I think that idolatry is one of the most relevant things in our culture, in our society, in our world. I mean, America, like this idea of like idolatry and what this means for the believer is, is such a, uh, a really relevant topic, relevant idea. Um, but let me just break it down for you very simply. Um, this just means, um, in, in other translations, it says abominable idolatries. And this is just the worship of idols and the worship of false gods. And so he says that, you know, you used to be in lawless idolatry. You used to worship all of these false gods, all of these false images, all of these things that you turn to instead of the true and living God. You know, this is something that God absolutely hates when we worship idols. And so Peter, he gives us this list of all of these sins. And of course, in your mind, you're thinking, Man, like not every single person is that bad. You know, not every single person does all of those really wicked things. Like that's not true for every single person. And you're right, not every single person goes to that extreme to do all of those things. But this list is such a relevant piece of scripture because this list gives us a snapshot into unconverted Christianity, into the, the, the un. Uh, saved person, a person who doesn't know Christ. This is a great window into that lifestyle because I'm sure that as you think about those things, as you think about like, like, like this public intoxication and, and the, this lust and the passion, the idolatry, as you think about um, all of these different things, you can think of our society. You can think of our culture. You can think of the fact that, you know, there are people um, in our families and we have classmates and we have coworkers and we have public figures whose lives revolve around these things. This is, this is extremely relevant, what Peter is talking about. This isn't something that happened in the first century. It doesn't happen in the 21st century. Like, we get this because this is, this is Gainesville. This is our city. This is Midtown. This is downtown. We understand what Peter is saying. And so he reminds us that This is what your life was once like. This is what it was like before Jesus, before Christ. This type of person lived in Peter's day, and they exist in our day as well. Human nature is so sinfully consistent. And so Peter reminds us that though this was once our lifestyle, we rejected this way of living. 
And that's, that's really challenging. You know, we've rejected this way of living. You know, it goes without saying that this is not the conduct of a believer. You know, we spent more than enough time as drunk, lawless, idol-worshiping, lust-driven partiers. We spent more than enough time, Peter says, like that. He wants us to remember what it was like to live in that emptiness. He wants us to remember how horrible it was to live in sin, how painful it is to live in sin. Remember what sin did to you. And with that in mind, he gives us verse 4. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter says the world is shocked when we don't live this lifestyle. And these words are so true. Um, just just as, as I was talking with someone this past week, they were telling me about um, this, this uh, person from a different country uh, who just recently came to the University of Florida. And while this person was at the University of Florida, they became a believer. And their lives changed so dramatically that their friends and those people that they were kind of hanging around began to say, you know, like, like, what's going on with you? You know, like, you used to, like, be with us and go here and do this, and you don't do this anymore. Like, 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 like what's wrong with you? Why, why don't you think this is okay anymore? Why aren't you good with this lifestyle that you used to be perfectly fine with? You know, he says that, that this is really relevant to us because, like, we get the fact that they're surprised when we don't join in with them. You know, any believer who spends a great deal of time with those in the world, you will soon discover that they count it strange when we don't join in. When you say you're different now, they say, oh, you got religion. Or they say, you found God. Or they say, you had a religious experience. You know, these are words that we very commonly hear in our culture um, as people describe people that used to be a certain way, but as believers are no longer. So many of the things we mentioned before are a part of the normal, everyday life of so many people who are outside of Christ. It literally shocks them when you don't join in. You see, the picture of being without Christ and lost here is of a flood. And this, uh, this, this reminds me um, of uh, a story that I just heard very recently. I was talking to a friend of mine that lives up in Georgia, and just a couple months ago, whenever um, there was like a lot of like hurricane action uh, kind of going on in that uh, part of, uh, of the, the, the southeast, um, this friend of mine has a daughter, and their daughter was told to go into the bathroom and to turn on the water into the tub so that you had that excess water for like whatever would occur. It's just a helpful thing, as we all know, living in Florida, to have extra water in the event of a hurricane. And so the daughter went into the bathroom, and she turned on the tub water, and she, she began to let it fill up. And then her mother said, all right, let's, let's go, and let's pick up your brothers from practice, um, and then we'll come back home. And she completely forgot to turn the water off, just totally forgot. And so they left, and they went to pick up the brothers, and when they came in, uh, they uh, stepped into the house, and the first thing that they kind of felt and heard was this sogginess. And the mother looked down, and you could almost see a layer of water over the entire area of the carpet in the house. They had been gone long enough for there to be a solid layer of water. And so as they began to kind of go through the entire house, like they noticed that like all of the tile and all of the wood and all of the furniture on the floor and even the walls, 
everything was soaked. Everything was completely flooded. And they were so, uh, so shocked and surprised that their daughter totally forgot to turn the water off once she began to leave. And the house was just totally flooded. And this idea of a flood is what, what Peter has in mind in this text. Is Peter says that, that there is this flood of debauchery. You know, things that, these, these people have been, um, they've experienced this massive flood. They've been flooded out. And the word says here that, that they're surprised when we don't join them in this flood of debauchery. And, and when you think of this word, I want you to, to think of this. Get this image of, of, of murky, dark, polluted waters gathering into a cesspool of filth. That, that is what it means to be in a flood of debauchery. You see, it not only surprises them, but they malign you after discovering that you're different from them. You know, it's not enough just to say that you're different, but they begin to, to persecute you. They begin to say negative things about you. They begin to malign you. They begin to speak um, slanderous words against you, speak lying words against you. Uh, the world speaks evil of believers because we don't run in the same cesspool as they do, Peter says. I remember um, several, several weeks ago, Daniel told this story that I think has left a, a really big impression um, in a lot of people's minds, this story about uh, the, the bridge babies. Um, and so like, like back in the ancient world, um, you know, people, um, you know, the way that they would practice abortion is they would take babies and they would put them underneath bridges and then Christians would come and they would take those babies away um, and Christians would adopt those children. And the way that um, the ancient Romans viewed that Christian practice was they used to say that the Christians were eating these children. They used to say Christians were cannibals, and what they did with the children was they took the children away and they ate them. And obviously, that was not true. That was a lie. But that, that wasn't the only uh, lie that a lot of the ancient um, pagans used to say about the Christians. Uh, they also used to uh, tell lies about the Lord's Supper. So what, one of the, the terms for the Lord's Supper is uh, love feast. And so in, in pagan life, a love feast was basically um, an, an idol-worshiping orgy that, that they would have. And so this was also the term used for the Lord's Supper. And what a lot of unbelievers would say was, well, you know, you Christians are practicing love feasts, and obviously this is horrible. This is super wrong. You guys are, are in these love feasts, and, you know, you're participating in, like, all this wild orgy type party type of a, a thing and that's that's not good that's not okay um and they would just lie on christians often and say that that that's what the love feasts were and the love feasts were the complete opposite of that the love feasts were just this opportunity for them to come together um and to partake in the lord's supper and reflect and remember what jesus did for them when he died for them on the cross and so they would they would malign the early church in so many ways one way is saying that they were cannibals Another way is saying that they are participating um, in these really like, like wild um, type of uh, 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 parties and feasts that were uh, totally um, full of like lust and like sensuality. And all of those things were lies. All of those things were things that were not true of the early church. You know, they used to malign the early believers. And the same is true of us. You know, the, the same is true for us as we live this life of faith. They will malign us. They will speak evil against us. They will lie about our conduct. The, um, the Irish Bible scholar, his name was uh, William Kelly, he, he said this. He said, 
There is plenty of evidence from pagan as well as Christian sources that it was precisely the reluctance of Christians to participate in the routine of contemporary life, particularly conventionally accepted amusements, civic ceremonies, and any function involving contact with idolatry or what they would consider immorality that caused them to be hated, despised, and themselves suspected of illicit practices. Just the early church, they just wouldn't participate. And consequently, they would be lied on consistently as they were, um, as they were talked about by those pagans. And so like, this is something that's always been true of believers, is that we're frequently despised and maligned. But verse 5 says this. It says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There will come a day when lost humanity will give account. Literally, this phrase is translated payback. Lost humanity will be paid back by God. God will pay back for every Christian all of the wrongs that we've experienced. Every bit of slander or every lie will be punished. God is keeping record and the payback is coming. Unbelievers will spend eternity trying to settle the debt that they owe God because of their misconduct of his children. Matthew 18, 23 describes this, um, as does Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And uh, this final passage, I want to actually read it for you. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 5. This is what the word says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might to when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He says, all the affliction, Paul says, that you've experienced, there will come a day when God is going to replay, repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. There's going to come a payday someday. God's keeping perfect record, and every wrong will be made right. Every word spoken and ill will be judged. God will judge those who are currently alive. He says that the living and the dead in this text in, in 1 Peter. God will judge those who are currently alive, um, and God will judge those who have died in the past. They're just the living and the dead. No one will escape. No one will be able to hide from God. He sees all. He is present everywhere. The whole world will be held accountable to God. Romans chapter 3 tells us in verse 19. The apostle is going to really great pains to remind us of what we have in Christ. He wants us to remember uh, just that we should be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, because Christ-focused suffering is better than sin. 
If I had to, to just summarize, you know, these first like five verses in one little phrase, it would be Christ-focused suffering is better than sin. We should be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. It is far superior to do God's will than to sin. Sin keeps us from being what we should be for God. Sin will cause the world one day to face the judgment of God, and suffering is better than sin. If you forget everything I say this morning, and you remember that one phrase, then this will be immensely valuable to your soul. This idea that suffering is better than sin. That's Peter's ultimate point in this entire book. And Kevin next week is going to kind of walk us through a little bit more of what it means to suffer as a Christian. Uh, that, that's kind of where Paul, where Peter goes. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm so used to saying Paul. Um, that's, that, that's kind of where Peter goes um, in the rest of chapter 4. Um, he's going to talk more about suffering. Um, and so this idea is, is extremely valuable, that, that suffering is better than sin. That should be like the one big takeaway that you get from this day. You see, sin will cause the world again to face the judgment of God, and godly suffering is better than running with the world. And this is what Peter is trying to encourage us towards. Verse 6 says this, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Raise your hand if you know what that means. All right, yes, that's, so that's, that's one of the examples of why this is such a difficult passage. What in the world does that mean? Verse 6, let me read it to you just one more time. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What does that mean? That's, this is super uh, confusing. This is really, really hard to understand. Uh, Bible's hard. You know, I'm not going to read it because it's hard. No, read it, please. Uh, you know, like dig. Uh, you know, study, think. Um, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not quite as hard as it may seem on the surface. Let me, let me tell you a, a story. And uh, this is a story that, that you, you may even know. Um, there was, uh, back in the 1950s, there was this really faithful uh, missionary. Um, this missionary in the 1950s was a guy named Jim Elliott. Um, Jim Elliott, um, he's primarily famous because of uh, this quote that he had, and I'll, I'll share it to you at the very end. Uh, but, but he was a um, very faithful missionary. And he went over uh, to the Native American tribe um, in Ecuador, uh, the, the Alcas. It's the Alcas tribe. Um, they're now known as the, the, the Wadani tribe. Uh, but back then, they were called the Alcas. And at the time of the uh, late 1950s, there were a group of people who had not heard the gospel. Uh, they had not fully heard the gospel. And Elliot and his team went to share the good news with this people group. And after many months of sharing supplies with the tribes, um, this team of missionaries decided that they wanted to make contact. And so they set up a camp um, on the beach. Uh, they actually built a treehouse uh, so that uh, they could kind of be off the ground uh, because this was seen as a very, very dangerous tribe. Um, as different groups of people tried to uh, create industry in that area, they found that a lot of uh, that people group began to, to kill uh, those people who were actually trying to, to, uh, to settle into that, that area and to build industry. And so they knew that if they were going to be able to continue to, to witness to these guys in a missionary sense, they were going to have to, to not even sleep on the beach, not even sleep on the ground. They had to build a treehouse uh, so that they were up off the ground. And so um, they, they, they built this little uh, treehouse to be able to live and after about six days, uh, they saw a few women emerge from the jungle 
and uh, they rushed out there to make contact with them. Well, the problem was that between where they were um, on the beach and where the women were, there was um, a river. And so uh, what they began to do is they got into the, the river. They began to try to cross the river over to the other side where uh, the, those women were. Uh, they were, like, really happy because, like, it's been really difficult for them to, like, make contact. And uh, they were like, well, this is a good sign. They're coming out to meet us. They're coming to where we are. And now we can kind of continue to, to show them the love of Christ and share with them the gospel. And so they ran out there into the water, and they began to wade over. Um, and as they began to wade over, uh, they heard this terrifying cry behind them. And they turned around, and when the missionary men turned around, they saw all of these, these Alka warriors with their spears drawn. And uh, the Alka warriors um, took their, their spears, um, and as they were readying themselves to throw the spears, uh, Jim Elliott remembered um, that, you know, he had, he had a gun on him. You know, he, he always kept a, a gun on him. But he made a, a vow and a promise to his team uh, that if their lives were in danger from this Native American tribe, they wouldn't kill him. They wouldn't shoot him. Uh, they were going to give their lives for the gospel. They were going to give their lives for Christ. They were going to practice what, what Peter's trying to encourage us to do this morning. And so he kept the gun in his pocket, and uh, that tribe threw their spears um, at the five missionary men, um, and he killed, and they killed all five of those, those, those men. And Jim Elliott, he said this famous quote, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And he gave up his life. Um, and what, one of the really powerful things about this particular group of people is that um, a guy that I consider to be my, my, my spiritual dad, kind of my second dad, uh, he told me the story of meeting uh, some of the men who actually killed Jim Elliott um, a couple years ago. Uh, those men uh, came to the States. Uh, they're a lot older now, obviously, uh, but they, they came to the States, and they began to, uh, to, to faithfully witness to Christ. And so Jim Elliott's mission was accomplished. He couldn't know in that moment that giving his life was going to be able to, to help advance the gospel. Um, he, he didn't realize that, but it did. Um, you know, by the way, that was, that was Kevin's point last week, is that suffering is evangelistic. You know, our suffering produces the ability for the world to understand the worth and the value of the gospel. Jim Elliott didn't realize what would happen as a result of his death, but that entire tribe is in Christ now. And they faithfully witness to the gospel this present day. And their children and their grandchildren um, are faithful, faithful believers um, in Christ as a result of him giving up his life. And so this is... This is a reminder that this truth that we have is worth dying for. Jim Elliott had hope in God, and that hope in God gave him um, great encouragement to share the saving message of Christ. And this message was given to those who are now dead. What does that mean? That means that there was a point in time before people died where they heard the gospel, they believed it, and they were saved. So it was given to those who are now dead. Because they died and heard the message of Christ, they were, um, quote-unquote, um, judged in the flesh. You know? So, so we, we've seen that judged in the flesh just means that, that you die. Um, they were judged in the flesh. They died after hearing the gospel. But now they're alive in the spirit. Now they're in heaven. Now they're in God's eternal kingdom. They now live eternally in the presence of God. And some of those to whom Peter sent this letter 
two, they saw their fellow believers martyred. You know, the early church, there was a ton of people who were martyred for the faith. Peter says that, that God has promised that through death, we could escape our oldest enemy, which is sin. And they may kill our body, but they cannot kill our spirit. The flesh will die, but the spirit will live forever. One purpose of the gospel message is to give us confidence that death is just a gateway to freedom, the freedom from sin. Sin is the ultimate barrier to God, and death for the believer is freedom from that barrier, is freedom from sin. And so Peter just wants us to live with confidence. The worst that the world can do to you is kill you. And for you as a believer, that's the best possible thing that could happen to you, to be separated from this, this flesh, to be separated from this sinful body, and to be united with Christ, to be in God's eternal kingdom forever. And I will say that as I just began to kind of explore this idea, that was a very, very challenging idea to my soul, is this idea that, that, that death is gain. Death is gain. Death is good. You know, Paul says uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is gain because you gain freedom from sin. You gain Christ. And that is what, what he's trying to tell us in verses 1 through 6. He's telling us that, that suffering in the world is something that's going to happen to every single person. Every single believer is going to suffer in the world. Suffering is a part of our job description, to, to, to kind of quote uh, from what Kevin said last week. Suffering is part of our, our job description. Uh, that's, that's a part of what it means to be a believer, to be in Christ. But he shifts and he transitions in verse 7 through 11 by talking about solace in the church, by talking about how suffering in the world should produce comfort within the body within the body of Christ. He says this in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You can, you can look at this next section as five pillars of Christian fellowship. Five pillars, five things that should be true of all genuine Christian fellowship in the midst of suffering. We will suffer but when the world is contentious and when the world is difficult, within the church, there should be peace. Within the church, there should be comfort and sorrow and relief from that suffering. When we go out beyond these doors, um, that is where we encounter, you know, difficulty. But when we are together, when we are the church, that's where comfort and joy should come from. And, and, and this, is, this is super basic Christianity, but hopefully you guys all know that, that, that this isn't the church. You know, like, like these, this floor and this ground and these chairs and this building, this isn't the church. The church is the people, the people of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the church of God. And so when the church scatters and we go beyond this building, that is when we should understand that our ultimate relief and refuge is one another. Our ultimate relief and refuge is what we are for each other as we look at these five pillars of Christian fellowship. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. This end isn't, uh, it doesn't have in mind this idea of finality. It has the idea of consummation. 
You know, like, like this is like that, that, that moment where you finally get the thing that you've been waiting for. That's the end that he has in mind here. You're going to finally reach the goal of what your faith has been drawing you towards. This is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, this end that he's describing. All of God's commitments are going to be realized in this final consummated end. And so what's the first pillar of Christian fellowship? When we're suffering in the world and we come together, what's the first thing that we have to do for one another to bring solace and comfort and joy? Well, the first thing he says right here is is prayer. He says, since the fulfillment of God's promises is near, we should pray. He says, pray. What produces effective prayer? Being self-controlled and sober-minded. What will make you strong for those who are suffering? Well, if you're being self-controlled, and if you're sober-minded. Self-control just means to be sensible, uh, to be prudent, to be disciplined. This strongly carries the idea of a a disciplined person. And then this word sober-minded means save your mind. It means to guard your mind, to protect your mind, to keep your mind clear. Guard it, protect it, keep it clear. Don't be swept away by emotion. Be sober-minded. Be even killed. Mark 5, verse 15, uh, uses this same word when it talks about um, the guy who is demon-possessed, who Jesus came to, um, and Jesus cast out the, the demon, and he was sitting and clothed and in his right mind. That's, that's the same word here as sober-minded. And also in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, uh, where, where, where Paul says, don't think of yourself too highly, uh, sorry, don't think of yourself too highly, but think of yourself with sober judgment. That's the same word as this word here. He says that we should have a mind that is strong, guarded, and protected, and clear of anything that would cause us uh, not to be extremely focused on our mission. Your mind is the key to effective prayer. So Peter says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. You must be self-controlled and sober-minded. There are so many people who are, who are, who are, self-centered, who are confused, who are distracted, who are consumed by, by worldly lust and all of these things that like incite emotion. And Peter says, don't let those things distract you. Come to God with a clear mind as you approach him in prayer. God is calling us to clear biblical thinking, communing with God, being in relationship with God, speaking to God, knowing the Lord is of central importance to Peter. You recall several weeks ago when we were talking about marriage that that Peter says, make sure that your marriage is right so as not to hinder your prayers. Like this idea that that, that being um, in right fellowship with people and with God so that you can pray is really, really big to Peter. He wants us to be able to have prayers that are unhindered, that are free uh, flowing and open because we have clear thinking, sober minds, Uh, We have sound judgment. If you want to help your suffering brothers and sisters, you must be in communion with God. With prayer comes power. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In the family of faith, love is the greatest mark of a believer. You see, deep, genuine, strenuous, true, tough love is what is in mind here 
in this text. Peter says to love one another earnestly. And this word earnestly carries the idea of being stretched out to the limit. It has this idea of a runner who's running a race at maximum output, and he has tight muscles as he's stretching and straining to reach the mark. That's, that's what this, this, this word right here is. This earnestly is just straining and stretching to meet the mark. He says that your love should be at maximum capacity. Your love should be absolutely at its most intense level. He says love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins and covering sins it doesn't mean that you avoid confrontation that's that's not what he has in mind here obviously other places in scripture uh, tell us uh, to do uh, just that uh, to to actually confront things uh, true love confronts uh, but this this is first Corinthians 13 type of love this is patient trusting and hopeful love Put simply, uh, to, to, to kind of bring the Hebrew into this, this Greek word, to put simply, covering sins means forgiveness. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will forgive, is what Peter is telling us. And this reminds me of, um, of a, a story about a group of people um, in the African country of Rwanda. Uh, maybe some of you have seen uh, the movie Hotel Rwanda. And, uh, and, and in that movie, um, it's basically about the Rwandan genocide. And in summary, uh, there are these two different people groups, uh, these two different tribes. Uh, there were the Hutu and the Tutsi. And colonial powers put uh, the minority group, the, the, the Tutsi, the much smaller group of people, in power over the Hutu people. Um, and what this did was this actually created a strong sense of resentment uh, between uh, those two different groups of people, particularly the Hutu over the Tutsi, because the Tutsi were kind of over them in all of the, the governmental senses of that word. And so in 1994, there was a plane uh, carrying the president of Rwanda, who was actually a Hutu. Uh, there was a plane that was carrying him, and it was shot down, and everyone that was on board actually died. And this event sparked the Rwandan genocide, as the Hutus sought to get revenge against the Tutsi uh, for shooting down their, their plane with their president in it. And in 1994, uh, which, which you know, feels like very, very, very recently, um, in 1994, in just 100 days, over 800,000 people were massacred, were, were, were murdered, were killed um, as they began to, to get revenge on uh, what they perceived as the Tutsi shooting down a Hutu um, in the plane. And one of the people who was affected by this was this woman um, named Immokalee. And Immokalee tells a story of how she, as a Christian, came to forgive the man who murdered her family. See, using the contact that she had through her father, she was able to go to the prison where the man was being um, imprisoned for murdering um, a bunch of different groups of people, one of which was her family. And she was able to go into the prison and she was able to actually see this man and speak with him. And as she um, had this man come out to meet her, she immediately broke down in tears. And she broke down in tears because of the compassion that she had for him. She remembered how he had been a family friend uh, before this conflict was sparked. And she remembered how she used to go out uh, to eat with, with his family 
Uh, this man, you know, once he, he had a, a great job, and there was a point in time where he had children and this beautiful family, and her family and his family used to hang out with one another. And um, back then, they were friends. But during the genocide, she and her family were Tutsi, and he and his family were Hutu, and so he killed several members of her family. And now, in this moment, she has this guy in her sights. And as she's looking at this guy who murdered several members of her family, she just looked at how he was uh, just, just messy. He had messy hair, and he looked like he was just in a really bad state, is what she said um, to quote her directly. And she broke down when she saw him like this. She told him that she forgave him. She wasn't angry with him. She wanted his conscience to be free. And this is a picture of true forgiveness. This is a picture of what Peter means when he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Is this type of forgiveness that she had towards this, this man. Because she realized that as a believer, there's no excuse to harbor unforgiveness. There is nothing that you can possibly come up with to hold on to another person's sin. Now, that, that doesn't mean that, you, um, that there's not a legal system and that people don't have to go through the process of being punished for wrong things that they do. Obviously, that is certainly true. But from the standpoint of the Christian, the person who's trusted in Christ, who's had their sins forgiven, who in a very real sense, God has, has covered their sins for the believer, we have to love. We have to forgive. We have to let it go. Just as God hid our sin, just as God concealed our sin, just as his love passed by our sin in silence and completely forgave it. And so, through the miracle of God's grace, Immokalee was able to do that for this man. And hopefully, this man one day will come to know Christ as a result of that love that she showed him. But when you read that, that, that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, that means that we have to be people of forgiveness. That's, that's what this looks like, is, is when you love one another earnestly, one of the fruit of love is forgiveness. That's not the only fruit. The next fruit, uh, the, the next pillar is hospitality. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. If we have genuine love towards one another, we will put that love into action. And one of the ways that we put that love into action is through a desire to give. You know, John, John 3, 16 Obviously, the most famous verse in the whole Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does love look like? Love gives. Love gives. John 3.16 tells us that love gives. Everywhere that you see the love of God displayed in Scripture, it is God giving of himself. And in the truest sense, even in this verse, Peter is saying that if you truly are going to love earnestly, you have, to, you have to give, you have to show hospitality. You have to open up your home. You have to open up your heart. The most sincere expression of love is a desire to give. Literally, this word means to love strangers. We should meet the needs of others as a result of God having taken us in. 
You see, in the ancient world, uh, there were um, inns, um, just like we have now, um, in a sense. But in the ancient world, the inns that they had back then uh, were very unsavory places. They're very unsafe places where a lot of, like, really illicit and immoral and dangerous practices took place. Um, and so for the Christian back then, for, for, for ministers and preachers and missionaries and just everyday believers, it was so critical that people within the church would show hospitality. It was so critical that Christians took in the stranger, oftentimes other Christians, so that they can avoid the ends. They can avoid those types of places. And so this is what Peter is encouraging us to do, to take in the stranger, to show hospitality, to take care of one another, uh, to show hospitality to one another, he says here. So much of our society revolves around this idea of, of loneliness um, you know, one of the, the things that really surprised me, I was talking to a counselor with uh, You Matter, We Care, uh, which is, I hope, I hope all the, 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 the Gator students know uh, that that's a part of the university. Uh, but I was talking to a counselor with You Matter, We Care, um, and as I was speaking with that counselor, they just kind of described how, um, how they deal with so many students who are lonely. And despite the fact that University of Florida has, has you know, 50,000 students, 50,000 plus, there are so many students who go through UF and are just lonely. And what an amazing opportunity we have as the church, as the body of Christ, to take those students in, to love students well, to show hospitality as members of God's family. When the fall starts back up again in just a couple months, we have the opportunity to show hospitality, to show love, and to truly be used by the Lord to relieve the suffering of even the world. You see, the church, which is the people in this building, should be a home away from home for college students in our area. Church should be a home away from home for um, the students um, as we like receive them into our homes, um, and as we receive so many uh, different people into our homes for the cause and for the sake of Christ. Countless people's lives have been changed for Christ as a result of a simple invitation to lunch. You know, some people in this room would say, well, man, I can't preach, and, and I'm not a great teacher, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm no good at dot, dot, dot. Uh, but any person can receive another person. Any person can open up your space and say, because I love Christ, I want you to feel at home. I want you to feel um, as though someone else cares about you. I want to be hospitable towards you. And uh, Peter says this. He says, without grumbling. And literally, this means without murmuring, without uh, grudging, we should do this happily as we remember the grace that God has shown us and how he has taken us in. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This verse has in mind the spiritual gifts uh, which are possessed by each person. Every believer has a gift. God has given us a gift in the church. Um, we didn't earn it. You know, we didn't do anything uh, to, to, to secure it. We didn't have to work to gain it. We didn't have to, uh, to, to be charged for it. This is just something that every believer has. Every believer has a gift. And Peter says um, that, that this, this gift that you have is, is, is free. It's undeserved. It's purely unearned and given to you by God's grace. And the purpose of the gift is so that you can build up the body. The purpose of the gift is so that you can bring comfort to those who are in suffering within the church. 
We have been divinely enabled to strengthen the body of Christ. Peter says, as each of you have, have received the gift, use it. You know, like, like those two little words, like use it, like to me, implies the fact that like he knows that so oftentimes we sit on the sidelines and we don't use our gifts. So oftentimes we come into church um, and we just kind of like sit, sit idly and we're like, you know, I just want to soak it in. I just want to like listen to whomever's up there speaking and I just want to worship and experience that, but, but I don't use my gift. You know, like I, I don't even know if I, if, if I have a gift. Well, one, every believer has a gift and two, God wants you to use it. Peter says, use it as each of you have received the gift, use it. We have gifts for the common good. We are to benefit one another. Each member of the body builds up and supports the other members of the body. Uh, to, to kind of bring an idea from 1 Corinthians 12 in, um, each member of the body mutually supports and builds up all the other members of the body. Naturally, obviously, that's what our body does. Um, and spiritually, in the church, we mutually build up one another within the body of Christ. If you don't use your gifts in this church, you are hurting this church. You are hurting Aletheia when you don't use your gifts. And so realize that each believer has a gift, and God wants you to use it to serve one another, he says. We don't use our gifts for ourselves. The gift is meant for others. You don't serve for you. You serve for me. You serve for him. You serve for her. I don't serve for me. I serve for you. We use our gifts to build up one another. That's the purpose of the gifts is to serve the other person, not to serve ourselves. He says, be good stewards, which means manage your gift well. Use your gift. Manage it well. You know, God has given us uh, money in a sense, and he wants us to multiply that which he has given us. It kind of takes us back uh, to that parable um, of the, the, the dishonest manager. And in that parable, uh, there's an owner, and he's given this manager charge over his estate. And the owner leaves, and he gets the report that the manager has been mismanaging his tasks, his assignment. He's been mismanaging the owner's property and his people and his land. And he gets on to that manager, and he throws that manager um, into, into prison. He wants to lock that manager up. Now, ultimately, he forgives that manager, uh, but the purpose of being a good manager, the purpose of being a manager in general, is to take care of the owner's goods, to use it well, to multiply it, to make the owner as prosperous as possible. And in like manner, spiritually speaking, with our gifts, Peter says to be a good steward. Take that gift that God has given you and multiply it. Use it to build up and to benefit the body, he says. He says, varied grace, which literally means multicolored. And, and this gives us the image of, of each person has a different proportion of gifts. You know, some, some person may have, you know, like a little bit of like teaching and a lot of mercy and um, a great high amount of leadership. And then another person has, you know, a lot of the, the gift of, of mercy and a lot of the gifts of help and just a little bit of administration. Like each of us has varying degrees of giftedness. And we need all of those gifts and all of their varying degrees to make this body function and to make this, this body work. That's what he means when he says varied grace. And then finally, verse 11 says this. Whoever speaks, and he's speaking specifically about the gifts, 
He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter breaks down these gifts. As if, if you're going to serve the church, if you're going to serve the body, if you're going to bring comfort to those who are suffering in the world when they come within our community, he says you've got to realize that there's two different types of gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Speaking gifts, that person should speak like they're speaking for God. Often this word is used as a substitute in other passages for the, the Old Testament, the very oracles of God, the very word of God. When you speak and you have the speaking gift, speak as though you are speaking on God's behalf because you are. You are the body of Christ. You are speaking God's words. These are not clever words of human invention. Um, these are the actual words and thoughts of God as revealed in his book, as revealed in his scripture. What should you look for in the message? And I'm so thankful that, that here at this church, um, we see this week in and week out. Uh, Kevin's a great display of this. Uh, what, what should you look for when a person is speaking before you on behalf of God? Uh, well, they should be systematic. They should be uh, didactic, uh, meaning that they should communicate clearly. Uh, they should have a clear like idea and a clear structure. They should be lively in their presentation. They should be relevant in application, and they should be authoritative because they're speaking on behalf of the king, on behalf of God. Um, and I, I borrow all of those terms from, um, from the preacher Alistair Begg, who, who says that when you listen to someone speaking the words of God, that's what it should look like. Um, it should look like that. What are some examples of speaking gifts? Uh, well, one is preaching, teaching, leading, giving a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, a word of discernment, a word of encouragement. There are people in this body who can do all of those things. Preach, teach, lead, uh, give words of knowledge, give words of wisdom, give words of encouragement, uh, give words of discernment. God has gifted this body with those gifts. Those are speaking gifts. And then he says that there are serving gifts. What are serving gifts? Uh, well, he says, first of all, serve in God's strength alone. You know, so like when you serve, like realize that like God has energized you to serve him. And so what are some examples of, uh, generally speaking, serving gifts? Well, it can be things like the gift of service itself, the gift of prayer, the gift of mercy, the gift of help, the gift of administration, the gift of generosity, the gift of leadership. All of those are examples of, of serving gifts. And there are people in this body who have all of those gifts. We have speaking gifts, we have serving gifts. Every believer has received a gift. And what is the ultimate pillar? So the ultimate pillar, the last pillar, the final pillar, and we've, we've looked at several of these pillars. We, we looked at, at the pillar of prayer, and we looked at the pillar of love, we looked at the pillar of hospitality, uh, we looked at the pillar of service, and then this fifth and final pillar is the pillar of praise. It's what we're about to do in just a moment. He says the final pillar of Christian fellowship that alleviates suffering, that makes our time in this world sweeter as we go between this world into eternity, as we prepare for our eternal home, that final pillar that we can give each other uh, to be able to be strengthened in time of need is the pillar of praise. 
Peter ends uh, this section, he ends this text uh, with, these, with these words again. Peter says um, in verse 11, he, he says, uh, that the second part, he says, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The final thing that we do is we realize that the goal of everything we do is God's glory. We do all of our suffering and all of our comforting to the glory of God. God looks really good when we show the world that he is worth all of the suffering that we endure. And so I ask you guys to bow with me now in prayer as we just begin to transition into this time of response. Just want to end this time this morning by just encouraging you to to take a few moments to ask the Lord to apply the word to your life. Prepare yourselves to joyfully take communion as we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. You know, we've seen so many things that he has done for us as he's uh, taken us out of darkness and into light. He's made us new. He's given us a purpose. Uh, he's given us an eternal home. If you want to at this time um, to, to speak to one of the elders, uh, they will be um, in the front and in the back. Uh, please feel free to speak with any of those guys. And just, just take this moment just to pray and ask the Lord to show you where you fit into these pillars that we've discussed, where you fit um, into this great family of faith. Let's uh, begin to, uh, to worship the Lord now. Mm-hmm.